This episode was previously recorded and broadcast to a live audience and has not been edited for content. Please excuse any references to slides and Q&A. Thank you for joining us. Okay, I think it's uh, time uh, to begin. Uh, we've had an opportunity for folks to join us. Uh, and let me uh, welcome uh, everyone uh, to uh, this uh uh, spring uh, 2022 Wallace Stegner Center Green Bag uh, on the important uh, topic of energy democracy. Uh, I'm Bob Keiter, uh, the director of the Wallace Stegner Center for Land Resources and the Environment uh, here at uh, the S.J. Quinney College of Law, uh, part of the University of Utah. Uh, let me begin by acknowledging that uh, this land named for the Ute tribe is the traditional and ancestral homeland of the Shoshone, Paiute, Goshute, and Ute tribes. The University of Utah recognizes and respects the enduring relationship that exists between many indigenous peoples and their traditional homelands. We respect the sovereign relationship between the tribes, states, and the federal government, and we affirm the university's commitment to a partnership with native nations and urban Indian communities. Before turning to our program for today, a couple of announcements. Uh, we will uh, convene again over the noon hour on February 24th uh, for another uh, virtual uh, Wall Stegner Center Green Bag. Our speaker uh, on the topic of uh, the rule of five making climate change history at the Supreme Court uh, will be Professor Richard Lazarus from the Harvard Law School, uh, also a visiting professor this semester here at the S.J. Quinney College of Law. Uh, Richard has represented uh, the United States as well as state and local governments and environmental groups uh, in uh, 40 cases uh, before the United States Supreme Court, presenting oral argument in 14 of those his most recent book uh, is, in fact, uh, the title of his talk, uh, The Rule of Five, Making Climate History at the Supreme Court. Uh, and he will relate uh, the inside story of the Supreme Court's 2007 decision in Massachusetts versus the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, probably the court's most famous environmental law case. Uh, I'd also like to call your attention uh, to the 27th annual Wallace Stegner Center Symposium scheduled for March 17th and 18th. Uh, this year, uh, we address another timely topic, the Colorado River Compact, uh, Navigating the Future. It's the title of the symposium. Uh, the timing is uh, appropriate. Uh, this is uh, 20, 2022 is the centennial year of the compact. Uh, the Stegner Center will be joined uh, by the Water and Tribes Initiative uh, as a co-sponsor of this year's symposium, uh, which will reflect on the past century of water management and envision our common future in the Colorado River waters. Uh, that will include strategies to share water, uh, to engage tribes, to integrate environmental considerations, and to adapt uh, to climate change. Uh, registration is uh, open uh, for the symposium. Uh, with options to attend uh, either uh, virtually or in person. At this point in time, uh, we are uh, planning to proceed uh, with an in-person attendance uh, option, and most of our speakers are likewise planning to attend uh, in person. Uh, we obviously will be guided by uh, the trajectory of uh, Omicron and the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, but things uh, look uh, promising at the moment. Our early registration ends March 4th, uh, and we hope you'll join us uh, and take advantage of the early registration discount. There's more information available, both about the symposium and about uh, upcoming events. Uh, that's on uh, the uh, calendar of events uh, on the Wallace Stegner Center's uh, website. Uh, and we update that information uh, regularly. So with that, uh, let me uh, introduce uh, Professor Danielle Andrus. Uh, who's a professor of communication at the University of Utah. She's also affiliated faculty in the Environmental Humanities Program uh, and the Global Change and Sustainability Center at uh, the University of Utah. 
And let me uh, also extend our thanks to uh, my colleague, uh, Professor Erica George, for uh, calling our attention to uh, Professor Anders' uh, most recent uh, book. Uh, Professor Anders' research uh, focuses on the rhetoric of science and environmental controversies, uh, including nuclear waste siting decisions, climate change, and energy transitions. She's currently working uh, on a, a study on energy democracy in Puerto Rico. Her uh, research uh, generally focuses on principles of environmental justice uh, and on how underrepresented groups and indigenous nations engage in science and environmental decision-making. Her, uh, she is the co-author of Participatory Critical Rhetoric, Theoretical and Methodological Foundations of Studying Rhetoric uh, in Situ, and also co-editor of several books, including the Rutledge Handbook of Energy Democracy. She's published numerous articles, enjoys support from the National Science Foundation, as well as fellowships from the University of Utah that have funded her research. Uh, and we're very pleased about that uh, because her research involves uh, this critical question of uh, energy uh, and how we share equitably uh, in uh, energy, both in this country and beyond. So it's my pleasure to uh, introduce now uh, Professor Danielle Enders uh, and uh, the topic of energy democracy, a pathway to just, equitable and democratic energy transitions. Thank you for joining us, Danielle. Thank you so much, Bob. And I will get my um, screen shared for, hey, hopefully that PowerPoint is visible for everybody. I want to thank uh, Bob again for that wonderful introduction. And um, of course, the, the Wallace Stegner Center and the College of Law for hosting this talk. Um, particularly thanks to Jen Nystrom, Trisha um, Kirscherman, and Spencer Cope, who've helped um, get everything set up for us. And then also, as Bob mentioned, I want to thank Erica George for connecting me with the Stegner Center to be able to present this work today. So we'll talk about a new co-edited book that I've produced with some colleagues on the topic of energy democracy, which we argue is a clear pathway to just, equitable, and democratic energy transitions. So we're in a period of intense energy transition that is linked with the looming and inevitable changes to our earth, ecosystems, and societies from climate change. We can see evidence of this transition in a variety of local and international issues, such as protests over the Dakota Access Pipeline, local community calls for energy justice, controversies over community solar projects in the US and abroad, energy transition in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria knocked out the energy system, resistance to nuclear waste siting, and massive power failures. Uh, we saw some in Texas, uh, and, and they're also happening abroad. So these examples all tell us that energy transition is becoming one of the most important challenges and maybe also opportunities that faces society. Um, as much as there are powerful interests that are working to ensure continuation of status quo energy systems, um, there, there are also um, resistive narratives, other narratives, alternative narratives coming from voices that demand and make possible an energy transition that reconfigures our relationship with energy, that democratizes energy through widespread participation in energy decision-making, and that infuses pr principles of justice into our collective futures. These are the goals of the energy democracy movement. Energy democracy is simultaneously an ideal to which many communities strive. Um, and it's also a process for making decisions about our energy futures. And it's a set of practices that seek to shift power away from fossil fuels toward renewables and away from privileged people who benefit the most to underrepresented communities, frontline communities, who are the most affected by the entire life cycle of energy extraction, production, and consumption. So energy democracy responds to the challenge of a warming planet. These images show results from the latest IPCC report on anthropogenic climate change 
indicating the need for substantial emission reductions um, to meet the goal of preventing warming beyond 1.5 degrees. And they indicate the need to radically and quickly transition to more sources of renewable energy. As my co-authors and I write in the handbook, the Rutledge Handbook on Energy Democracy, energy transition is undoubtedly one of human society's most acute global socio-technical problems. In the midst of the climate crisis and its ongoing disproportionate impacts on marginalized, underrepresented, and under-resourced communities, there is an urgent need to incorporate the tenets of democracy, including justice, equity, and participation into the crucial decisions people make about energy over the next several years. So my work on energy democracy began about six or seven years ago, as many projects kind of begin. I was conversing with colleagues at a conference we talked about energy democracy as a movement that was interesting and making some um, innovative arguments in relationship to energy transition. And so then it immediately struck my colleagues and I that our kind of ongoing interests in energy communication, just transition, democratic participation, not only fit with the discourses of energy democracy coming from social movements, but also positioned us to develop a research program that could then analyze, theorize, and study the concept of energy democracy. We held a symposium and you see a few images on the screen from that symposium in July of 2017, where we brought together a group of scholars and practitioners to build a research agenda in energy democracy. In other words, talk about all of the ways that uh, research can, um, can help to think through energy democracy. Similar to how environmental justice can be described as both movement and academic area, we sought to catalyze the academic area of study for energy democracy through collaborations with interdisciplinary humanities and social science scholars who, had, who have expertise in energy studies, democratic theory, participatory democracy, energy justice, and social movements. So now we jump forward to 2022, January of 2022, with the publication of the Rutledge Handbook on Energy Democracy. And you see a, a, a picture of the book on the screen. This is an international and transdisciplinary edited collection that uses a social science and humanities lens to define key concepts, present state-of-the-art research, and highlight key on-the-ground practices of energy democracy. The book addresses the issues of energy access, ownership, and participation at a time when they're expanding social, political, and environmental and economic demands on energy systems, one of the most important of which is the ongoing climate disaster. This book works from the basic premise that an energy transition rooted in democratic principles is our best hope of achieving just, equitable, and culturally appropriate solutions across the many scales of decision-making about energy, local, national, international, all of those. So today I want to Start with a conceptual framework for energy democracy. This is a framework that my co-editors and I develop in uh, the introductory chapter of the volume. And this sets the stage for how we understand energy democracy theoretically and conceptually. And then I'll give a brief overview of the book and the sections in the book. This is an edited book. So there are chapters by scholars um, across disciplines, across the US internationally in this co-edited volume. And then I picked out a few of the chapters that have some particularly interesting um, cases, concepts, and findings that I'll, that I'll share. And then of course, I'll open it for Q&A. So the conceptual framework for energy democracy. So we argue that energy democracy is a composition and we draw from Bruno Latour who argues that compositions acknowledge that things have to be put together while retaining their heterogeneity. Latour offers composition as superior to a mindset of critique because it turns attention to building alternatives that can have impact in the world 
as opposed to the tendency of academic critique to stop at deconstruction or stop at critique and not provide alternatives. Um, so composition works as a framing tool for energy democracy in two ways. First, it focuses our attention on how seemingly disparate things like energy and democracy can be mashed together. And then it encourages what's called an engaged research program that can respond thoughtfully to immediate crises as opposed to only critiquing. Um, and composing, of course, is not easy, but it's, we argue, an essential framework for the energy and climate exigencies at hand and for academic scholars to be able to play a part in producing research that contributes to responding to these exigencies. So I'll go through energy and then democracy and then I'll talk about energy democracy. So energy is any power that may be used to operate the infrastructures of the human built environment. Humans derive that power from resources such as fossil fuels, solar, wind, hydroelectric, nuclear, biofuels, and the list goes on, that are extracted and harnessed, prepared, and then distributed in, a, in cycles of energy production that include resources, production, and consumption. Energy is used by humans to, of course, fuel the technologies that support our and our companion species lifestyles. Yet the forces of energy in our lives can be both highly visible and highly invisible. For example, we could share an image or a tweet about the Dakota Access Pipeline protests on one of our many screens. And in that moment, we might be actively thinking about energy in terms of oil being transported through a pipeline, but also overlooking energy in terms of the electricity that powers the phone or computer or whatever device we're using to share that tweet. Or to make it even more relevant to today, we're thinking about energy in the context of this presentation, um, but perhaps not about the devices and the internet connections that are of course enabling this interaction today. So energy is everywhere in our modern world and infused in our everyday activities. As we consider energy as an ever present part of our lives, we need to consider our own practices in terms of who benefits and who doesn't and what is our role in the coming energy transition or the ongoing energy transition. Energy studies scholars Sovacol and Dworkin call for everyone to recognize our involvement in energy injustices and act accordingly. So next we have democracy, which of course is notoriously um, maybe both easy and difficult to define. I think we all think we know what democracy means. We certainly hear appeals to democracy as a social good over and over. We hear about risks to our democracy, uh, both here and abroad. Um, and so the term has been theorized, debated and developed over thousands of years in scholarly literatures that identify numerous forms, practices, and ideals of democracy. For our purposes, we adopt the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's definition of democracy as a method of group decision-making characterized by a kind of equality among participants at an essential stage of the collective decision-making. So this definition aligns with the theoretical literature on participatory democracy or democratic deliberation that prizes active participation by those affected by decisions, equity, and also justice. Moreover, this definition recognizes that democracy is a process, um, an imperfect process for sure, um, but, but a process and not simply a utopian goal. Democracy as process can be temporarily enacted in particular situations and can occur at a variety of scales of decision-making from local to global. Democracy as process also requires constant vigilance. So I do wanna briefly acknowledge that of course, I know there are critiques of democracy, democratic theory, or democracy as practiced in particular nations. Um, and our definition is not aligned with a particular political system, like America as a democratic nation. Um, as noted, it's really a process of decision-making um, that sometimes is and sometimes isn't followed, even in democratic nations. And so the energy democracy movement maintains that there's value in striving to enact 
democracy as process as often as we can when we're making decisions about energy. So now we get to our composition or our mashing together of energy and democracy. So energy, um, democracy is a comp composition that retains the differences between the concepts, but also allows for a productive relationship that has the potential to do things in the world. The term energy democracy comes directly from on the ground community groups who use the term to describe their efforts and their processes and their goals. It is a social movement that is growing in strength and scope, yet while energy democracy movements are increasingly asserting their role in energy decision making, when we, when my co colleagues and I started looking for academic literature, academic scholarship on the topic, academia had not yet substantively engaged with theorizing and analyzing this concept. So like I said before, similar to environmental justice, which is both a movement and an academic area of study, we wanted to create a research program that, um, that worked alongside um, some of the things that were being promoted in the energy democracy movement. In our attempt to catalyze a research agenda for energy democracy, we define energy democracy as an emergent social movement that reimagines energy consumers as prosumers, producers and consumers, um, owners and analysts, who are involved in decisions at every stage of this sector, from extraction to production to consumption. Energy democracy therefore includes a broad range of actors, democratic values, sites of participation, forms of justice and, and relations of power. Technology studies scholars Winner and Sklove argue for democratization of technological decision-making so that publics can be more involved in technological decision-making. And so the goal of energy democracy is not to find that one perfect technology that is always democratic. Rather, the goal is to infuse democratic principles into all sorts of decision-making about energy policy and figure, figuring out what is the most democratic in a particular location and context. So as we started thinking about energy democracy as a concept and as a, as, as a, a, a theoretical resource, um, one of my co-authors and I, Andrea Felpop Parker, developed a conceptual framework that places energy democracy at the intersection of technology, justice, participation, and power. Many frameworks for looking at energy transition look at economics, politics, and technology as kind of the standard, you know, the standard things that we would look at if we're thinking about energy. We don't deny that economics and politics are of course central to any sort of decision-making about energy systems and energy transition. But we wanted our framework to re reflect what the movement was saying, which is that it be based in democratic principles that are being strived for. So that includes genuine participation of stakeholders, um, even those that are not always included, uh, justice in the process distribution and recognition of stakeholders, technologies that can reduce greenhouse gases and equitable relations of power. And so of course, economics, politics, they play into this model as well um, in terms of how they're related to these four components or principles. So the justice, power, participation and technology framework allows researchers to examine theoretical models, empirical examples of ongoing struggles over energy, and practical recommendations for communities engaged in promoting energy democracy. In other words, these four components are both necessary to achieving energy democracy, but are also analytic tools that can be used to study local, national, and global decisions about energy transitions. This framework doesn't define one ideal energy democracy, but rather as Chilvers and Pallet argue, it can be used to study the multiple energy democracies that are possible, or these multiple ways of advancing the principles of energy democracy across varied locations. So I'll just briefly talk through those components of the model. So justice, of course, um, is, a prerequisite for a democratic energy transition. 
this component of the model builds from environmental justice movements, including climate justice, energy justice, just transition. And this component turns our attentions to issues of inequity, marginalization, racism, settler colonialism, anthropocentrism, and other contributors to injustices, such as access to affordable energy, disproportionate impacts from energy development on Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, and voices that are generally excluded from decision-making. Attending to justice as an ideal of energy democracy recognizes that the energy transition is already happening, but there's no guarantee of justice. Indeed, the status quo environmental and energy policies tell us that justice and the concerns of people of color communities around the front lines is often an afterthought, if it's considered at all. Attending to justice also tells us that no energy technology is inherently just. Rather, justice must be actively pursued alongside energy, or energy technology implementation. The second component is participation, which is essential for the processes and outcomes of energy decision-making. We draw from participation, democratic theory, deliberation, and dialogue scholarship to focus on how individual and collective actors engage in decision-making about energy. Participation can span formal processes of gathering stakeholder input, such as public hearings. You see an example of that on the screen to protest events for people who um, are not given a seat at the table or feel they're not given a seat at the table. Participation can also include community ownership um, of energy technologies. This is rooftop solar or microgrid um, community solar systems as an example. The key with participation is that it is genuine, uh, involves all affected stakeholders, and can actually have an impact on decision-making. One of the key critiques of a lot of decision-making processes is that the public is kind of brought in at the end when a decision is already made. And so there's not a, a genuine way to impact decision-making. Fostering broad participation in energy decision-making can bring local community and public expertise that is based on everyday engagement with social, cultural, political, and ecological systems. And um, a couple of the chapters in the book look at how, in particular, frontline community knowledges are essential to uh, energy systems. So then we have power as our third component. Of course, not in the sense of energy or electricity, which we could also talk about as power, um, but in the sense of political and social power. And so power, like democracy, has been theorized, been talked about. It's a, um, all across academia and, and scholarly literatures. But at its core, power is the ability to act or not to act to elicit change. Following Chantal Mouffe, we know that power is often unequally distributed in decision-making spaces, leaving some actors to wield more power over than others. And a key example that the energy democracy points to is the disproportionate power that fossil fuel companies are having in energy systems in the US. Um, another theorist, Michel Foucault, tells us that power is also multi-directional. So we can speak of both controlling forms of power that are coming from above and also resistive forms of power that are coming uh, from grassroots movements, activism, and those sorts of things. So energy democracy recognizes that forms of social, political, and corporate power cannot be ignored when we talk about energy systems and energy transition, and that seeking justice and genuine participation, the other two components I've just talked about, requires a balance of power that is more equitable and democratic. Last but not least, technology. Of course, technology is key to our energy transition. Um, we need uh, to implement technologies that already exist, innovate technologies. Um, of course, they play a strong role. But technology alone cannot and will not solve the climate crisis. The energy transition to address climate change is fundamentally what science and technology scholars call a socio-technical issue, meaning that the technology is already embedded in social systems and that those social systems need to be considered for implementation or adoption of these technologies. So developing a technology does not guarantee 
that society will see value in it, or that publics and policymakers will accept the scientific evidence behind it. Um, an example of this is nuclear energy um, can never simply be seen as a, as a neutral technology. It's always already embedded in historical, cultural, political contexts. So we resist viewing the social, the political, the cultural, historical, the ecological um, as simply context for technology implementation. Rather, we see these elements as a, an essential starting point for understanding energy transition. Including technology in our framework enables viewing technology from these lenses of justice, participation, and equitable power relations, therefore reorienting the range of considerations and voices in technology adoption and implementation. So as you likely noted as I was talking, um, there is overlap um, and relationality between justice, participation, power, and technology. Um, genuine participation, for example, is more likely to create just outcomes and more equitable relations of power. Energy democracy is at the center of the diagram because it relies on intersecting principles and practices of justice, robust participation by affected stakeholders, more equitable relations of power, and then this suite of technologies that can be chosen for particular locations and contexts. So as I noted before, while energy democracy is an ideal, there are many possible energy democracies in practice. So next, I will just let you know a little bit more about the book itself. Here's an image of it. I co-edited it with the scholars that are listed on the screen. And the book proceeds in six sections that we have here listed on the screen. So scalar dimensions of power and governance. So this is just looking at governing at different scales, local to international. Discourses of energy democracy. This looks at the ways that the communication that we use um, to, to talk about energy transitions um, can, can help us to understand the values and assumptions that are undergirding those word choices. Um, grassroots and critical modes of action. So this looks at strategies that have been used by local communities and energy democracy movements. Um, then we have democratic and participatory principles. So this is where authors in that section get into democratic theory, public participation, um, theorizing and showing empirical evidence of what forms and, and strategies of promoting democracy and participation work the best and, and those that don't work as well. Then uh, part five is energy resource tensions, which is where authors um, in each of those chapters take a particular energy technology and um, talk through the tensions for democratic principles that might exist in those types of energies. And then the final section, energy democracies in practice, is a set of case studies that highlight a range of successful practices and processes of energy democracy that provide insight into doing the practical work of um, building towards energy democracy. And so we have case studies that look at carbon neutral pledges, um, collaborations between the global north and global south, uh, energy sovereignty on indigenous nations. Um, and so through these six sections, we get a broad kind of swath of many, many ways that scholars from different disciplines, both domestic and international, um, can help us to build our academic understanding of energy democracy towards then um, academics and scholarship playing potentially a role in energy transition. So as I said, I wanted to highlight a few of the key chapters in the book. So in this chapter, um, it focuses on critiquing energy dominance policy that was introduced by former President um, Trump. And it hones in on the importance of the executive branch in terms of climate and energy policy. We saw that under Trump, we saw that under Obama, we're seeing that with um, Biden. Um, but they focus on Trump's energy dominance um, policy and uh, they critique it according to some of the principles of energy democracy. And they talk about how that um, choice of words, that political rhetoric um, 
sought to make energy dominance and the continuation of fossil fuels seem reasonable and common sense. And the chapter shows that part of promoting energy democracy is also understanding the arguments that are out there that might be um, pushing against energy democracy. This chapter is great. It, is, um, it takes us to Thailand, um, the Pa Deng community that live in the King Krachen National Park in Thailand. And the author notes that while Thailand is a non-democratic state, there was a coup in 2014 that, that kind of initiated um, a non-democratic state. That you, if you follow Thailand, you've seen that there are ongoing democratic protests. Um, but at the local level, this community was able to practice energy democracy as they transformed their energy system away from kerosene cooking to biomass cooking, as they brought online um, a set of community solar panels that had never been used or implemented before. And the chapter looks at how the local practices of the podding community enact justice, participation, and equitable power relations, suggesting that democracy as process can manifest, persist, and thrive even within a non-democratic democratic national regime. This is another great chapter. Um, it relates to some of the new work that I'm doing on energy democracy in Puerto Rico. And this one focuses on the role of academics as being a part of energy transition. And so you may know that Hurricane Maria dramatically exposed to the rest of the world many of the flaws of an aging electricity grid that was primarily based in imported fossil fuels. Almost 3,000 people died and some people were out of electricity for a year as a result of Maria. So even before the hurricane, local communities had been working toward community solar. Um, they intensified their advocacy after Hurricane Maria. Um, and then the Puerto Rican government and a failing utility company are, are seeking to revise uh, repair the grid. Um, and so there's a very transitional moment in energy um, and electricity grid in Puerto Rico. And so Perez Lugo and her co-authors were founders of the National Institute for Energy and Island Sustainability. And this chapter highlights how this institute played a key role in bringing academic insight into policymaking. And the institute serves as a model for future academic and public partnerships that strive towards these tenets of energy democracy. This one, I'm, I, I'm, I'm promoting my own chapter, but I'm doing it because I really wanna promote the work of the graduate student who's now a faculty member actually, Taylor Johnson, who worked on this with me. And um, in this chapter, we focused on enactments of energy democracy in indigenous nations on this continent. Uh, these offer successful models of energy democracy on a national government governing level. We focus on how Honor the Earth, which is an indigenous environmental organization, supports and works with indigenous nations in enacting sovereignty and self-determination about energy, um, sometimes called energy sovereignty um, in their nations. And of course there are over 500 indigenous nations in what we now call the US alone. So this is not, um, these are not general to all indigenous nations, but particular strategies that were undertaken by particular indigenous nations. And so we look at three strategies that enacted principles of energy democracy. The first were solar installation projects on indigenous lands. The second were indigenous governments hosting public hearings when the federal government failed to provide them. Um, and that was in relation to Dakota Access Pipeline. And then indigenous nations uh, using their self-determination to adopt resolutions to ban um, fracking. So those three examples show how energy democracy principles can be enacted by indigenous nations. And then finally, um, last but not least, uh, this chapter makes an important argument that renewable energy technologies are not inherently just, equitable, and democratic. Finley Brook focuses on a cross-national cross -national approach by showing similarities in large-scale hydroelectric energy projects across various countries in what we now call Latin America. And one of the projects she highlights is the Belo Monte Dam in Brazil, as you can see on the screen. Um, she highlights the injustices, particularly for indigenous peoples 
in these dam projects and argues that to promote energy democracy requires adherence to UN statutes, such as those on the rights of indigenous people, um, reforming international banking systems um, and ensuring government oversight. So these are just a few of the many wonderful chapters in this edited book. Um, and I chose them to show the breadth of what's covered in the handbook. I wish that I could have talked about all the chapters because uh, they're really wonderful. We've got, um, we've got about 30 chapters total um, in the book that delve into lots of other interesting cases and theorizations about energy democracy. So in closing, before we transition to the Q&A, I want to return to Bruno Latour's notion of the composition or the putting of things together while retaining their heterogeneity. And not only is energy democracy a composition that puts together energy systems with democracy, as I talked about in the beginning, but we see the handbook as a productive composition. It's a composition of multiple disciplines in the humanities and sciences, all speaking to an urgent issue. It is a composition of scales, theories, concepts, empirical evidence, practices, and more. And it's also a composition that can give guidance to practitioners, publics, and policymakers in pursuing the most democratic possible energy transition. So in the spirit of inviting you as my wonderful audience members to think about how the energy democracy composition affects you, um, I invite you to reflect on these questions in relation to energy in your own community. So do you know where your energy comes from? Do you know who makes decisions about energy in your community at local, state, or national levels? What pathways and processes are, are available to allow you to participate in decision-making about energy? Who is, an invite, who is invited to be a part of decision-making? Who's left out? Who benefits from energy decisions? Who doesn't benefit, I would add? Um, and how can you contribute to making the energy transition more democratic? So uh, I want to acknowledge that this is, this is collaborative. Um, of course, I highlighted some of the chapter authors in my slides. Um, my main collaborators on this project since that very beginning are Tarlaray Peterson, Andrea Feldpah Parker, Leah Sprain, Nico Hernandez, and Stephanie Gomez. And then uh, this slide shows some of the institutions that have been involved as well as um, some of the funders for this work. And with that, I'm gonna stop share and um, I would love to do some Q&A with, uh, with all of you in the audience. Thank you so much for your time listening to my presentation. Danielle, thank you for that uh, <clears throat> very enlightening uh, presentation and tying together uh, energy uh, and democracy <clears throat> and linking it also obviously to uh, climate change and other uh, uh, concerns uh, that uh, are part and parcel of uh, the future that we're uh, contemplating uh, currently about uh, where we're headed with, uh, with energy. Uh, let me remind uh, the audience that there's a Q&A function at the uh, bottom of the screen. Uh, that uh, you can use to transmit uh, questions. I'll uh, pass them on uh, to uh, uh, Danielle and we'll uh, uh, take it from there. Um, uh, during your talk, uh, we had a, a, a query come in in the chat uh, room. It's probably uh, visible to everyone. I'll see if I can summarize it. It uh, ties into a local issue uh, where there's a uh, equity uh, energy uh, uh, types of uh, questions are wrapped up. Um, it goes uh, in Arizona where we've had uh, coal plants uh, uh, on or near reservations uh, closing, uh, but where many people have uh, no uh, electricity, uh, just transition advocates have proposed both uh, large scale uh, power plants uh, to uh, replace uh, the coal plants uh, that uh, have or are closing and to create some jobs and income. Uh, but uh, also electrifying homes uh, at the, another al alternative suggested, electrifying homes at the expense of the closing uh, utility. 
uh, with uh, solar uh, or battery storage uh, to make those homes uh, less dependent uh, on uh, large-scale uh, plants uh, and uh, the grid. Um, how does that uh, one or the other of those alternatives uh, fit in with uh, the energy democracy uh, movement that you've uh, uh, revealed to us? Great. Yeah, thank you. That's such a wonderful question and actually relates to some of the research that I've done with my graduate student on um, thinking about energy democracy, particularly for indigenous nations. And so, you know, without kind of doing the analysis and knowing all of the details of that particular case, I can't at this point say, yes, it's energy democracy or no, it's energy democracy. What I would do to be able to evaluate that is look at those components that I presented in that framework. Um, so to what extent do these shifts from coal to alternative sources of energy on the Navajo reservation um, enhance justice? Uh, to what extent are they fostering genuine participation? Um, to what extent are they seeking, seeking equitable power relations? And one of the things that's so important when we're thinking about indigenous nations is again, recognizing that those are um, of connection with the United States federal government, settler colonialism and such, but that would be a really key component to also um, analyze if we were to look at this particular case is to see um, how is this case, um, how is it working with the indigenous, with the Navajo nation, with the tribal government that, um, that is impacted? And, and is that tribal government fostering participation with its citizens, um, pursuing policies that are just and, um, and equitable? And so again, the, the idea of the framework is that it gives us these principles and then we can take any case, right, of a local community, an indigenous nation, a state government, a national government, and we can analyze it through those principles of energy democracy um, to, to, to help determine um, how it fits within those principles. Right. So thank you for that great question. Great. Uh, thank you uh, for uh, that enlightenment on, uh, <coughs> on that, <coughs> excuse me, in the, uh, this uh, uh, indigenous uh, context. Um, uh, another uh, question has come in. Uh, 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 the questioner says uh, that uh, they're concerned about how the hearings at public utility commissions are very complex and uh, how capacity uh, meetings by grid operators are not even known to the public, uh, that these determine uh, uh, whether utilities can take in uh, distributed generation and without that capacity for two-way uh, movement and a complementary uh, fair pricing system, uh, we won't uh, uh, get uh, prosumers uh, very easily. Uh, I think this relates to some of the concerns about the uh, uh, rooftop solar and uh, the like uh, here locally and elsewhere. And yeah, the relationship between homeowners and the uh, utilities. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and any, any of you that are joining from Salt Lake City know that over the past several years, we've had a lot of um, controversy over rooftop solar and Rocky Mountain Power, which is our utility, um, and the way that the pricing structure is set up and, and the, the modes of public participation that are involved. So, you know, many um, government agencies and also public utilities follow, um, tend to follow what's called a decide, announce, defend model of public participation. And I hinted at this a little bit in the presentation, but it tends to be a model that is um, based in kind of making a decision and then taking it to the public to sort of check off that we've done some public engagement. And so that's sort of a model which has been heavily critiqued throughout public participation literature, particularly environmental public participation literature, um, kind of allows for some of the, the problems that were noted in the question. So um, if it's a sort of a checkoff that happens after a decision is made, there's maybe not a huge incentive to advertise it really broadly and get a lot of people um, to show up to one of these public hearings. Um, there's also a tendency kind of given that, that many of these decisions are really, um, there's a lot of technical detail. There's a lot of um, kind of techno-scientific uh, or like really intense economic um, kind of arguments that um, 
that sort of frame these as discussions about technology and maybe economics and don't generally invite the sort of expertises that can come from members of a community. Um, and so, yeah, that is what energy democracy is really striving for. It's striving to kind of move away from these decide, announce, defend models that have really been shown to be problematic towards more dialogic models where people are invited uh, very early on into decision-making, um, the, the, there's, um, the, the kind of points that they bring up can actually have the potential of maybe changing um, decision-making. So it's a big, it's a big challenge to, um, to implement this. Um, there are some hopeful signs, um, particularly in terms of uh, federal government Department of Energy seems to be really trying to shift um, to models that are more, more inclusive. Um, anyway, I hope that answered, answered the question. Uh, related to that, it occurs to me, are there uh, efforts afoot uh, either by uh, the uh, utility commissions, uh, the agencies or uh, industry to, uh, you know, sort of help educate uh, the public so they can participate meaningfully uh, in some of these uh, technical uh, and or uh, highly uh, uh, difficult economic uh, equations uh, that seem to be part and parcel of uh, making uh, energy decisions. There are, you know, it really depends on which region of the country, and I'm, I'm talking mostly US, um, this is also international. Um, and so it, it just depends on, on the location, the country, as to how involved the industry or um, utilities are in, in seeking to kind of educate um, public so that they can um, have the resources to be able to engage um, in these conver conversations. I think one of the things to um, keep in mind is that um, education is kind of one piece of it. And then with that education, making it a dialogic um, encounter where um, publics can, can have meaningful say, can have meaningful contributions to decision-making. So related to that, I believe uh, there's instances where uh, by law, uh, uh, consumer advocates have been uh, uh, employed by or appointed by the government to get involved in uh, these types of proceedings. Uh, is that uh, relatively common or still unusual at this point? You know, I don't actually know a lot about that. That's something that I could probably learn more from you about. Um, and so I can't, I can't say if it's more or less, um, less common to bring that in. Um, but certainly any sort of actions that encourage um, moving towards these more genuine um, participatory models are, um, are a benefit, I think, to democracy and to um, energy decision-making. Great, thank you. So uh, we have a, a query uh, tied into the, uh, uh, International Petroleum Industry Environmental Conservation Association uh, that uh, has elevated support for just transition uh, as uh, one of their uh, top uh, areas of focus as part of the 2021 to 24 strategy. Uh, how uh, could uh, those of us in the oil and gas industry uh, advise clients on how to best uh, incorporate, uh, communicate, and track how companies are participating in a just transition. So someone on the inside looking for some guidance as to how to actually engage uh, in the transitional process. Great. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that there's someone that is, is part of that industry that's here on the call. I think that um, as a starting point, these principles that, um, that we've defined through energy democracy, um, we kind of see just transition as sort of a subset of this larger energy democracy movement. So, so returning to those principles of um, thinking about issues of inequitable power distribution and, and making those more equitable, thinking about justice, thinking about forms of um, participation and everything that's done can be great. Um, I think in terms of um, actual corporations and how to sort of hold corporations accountable and, and help them in that transition, um, 
you know, sometimes federal regulation is uh, is a way that can encourage um, certain benchmarks and actions. Um, I think that professional organizations can be a great resource. I happen to know a lot about nuclear energy, um, and so the, the kind of professional organizations that work on nuclear energy can be really great at developing sets of principles and goals um, as they kind of pursue um, uh, their argument is for including nuclear in the mix um, as we engage in this in this transition. Um, you know, and, and certainly um, the just transition really focuses our attention on um, ensuring that as we transition away from primary dependence on fossil fuels to more renewables, that we're very attentive to workers, that we're attentive to those in communities that would be impacted by this, and that we're attentive to things like jobs and um, ensuring that um, as we transition to renewables, that we're, you know, we're also providing training and, um, and that we're attentive to the just, justice implications for those communities. Thank you. Uh, uh, just to follow up on the co consumer advocate point that I made, one of our uh, participants uh, just notes that uh, there is provision for uh, consumer uh, advocates uh, here in uh, Utah, uh, but uh, notes that they often uh, are uh, reluctant to uh, uh, endorse uh, renewables as an alternative. Um, at any rate, uh, just to put that into some context. Uh, another question. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Danielle. Oh, I was just saying, great. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to learn about that. I'm going to look into it more. Uh, another uh, question. Uh, uh, the uh, questioner notes that uh, uh, your presentation uh, seems to take the position that uh, participation by disadvantaged communities in energy decision making will produce uh, just uh, decisions. Uh, and then notes that disadvantages, disadvantaged communities have their own uh, political processes and uh, issues in terms of whether they're democratic or not at the end of the day. Uh, and goes on to ask, uh, uh, is it your view that uh, local participation necessarily will produce uh, just uh, decisions uh, that, that uh, will be more uh, or will be viewed more as just uh, to the uh, broader societies in which they uh, are typically uh, embedded? Yeah, that is a great question. And I think the reason that energy democracy, both the movement and the academic area um, is devoting a lot of attention to maybe underrepresented communities is um, because underrepresented communities tend to be the ones that are not getting as much of a voice um, in decision making. Now, I think that um, any particular issue, if it's a local issue, if it's a national issue, um, really, we want to uh, encourage equitable power relations. We want to encourage that, um, that we're just asking those questions of justice for whom, um, who's benefiting, who's not benefiting from those situations. And answering those questions can really lead to a variety of um, configurations of populations that are not being served in a particular situation and populations that are being served. And so, you know, our, our kind of tenets of energy democracy are really focused on um, just allowing for communities that have not traditionally been involved in the decision-making to have their voice, but it does not mean that that voice is the only voice um, that, that, that comes through the conversation and the decision-making. Uh, another question um, notes that uh, there are uh, uh, communities that are quite uh, cost sensitive uh, to uh, energy costs, along with communities that have jobs uh, dependent upon, if you will, traditional uh, fossil fuel uh, energy. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, the powers that be, the decision makers uh, are responding to uh, concerns by uh, their constituents about uh, you know expense, uh, job loss, et cetera, are uh, quite resistant to uh, any sort of transition to uh, renewables. Um, is there a way uh, to move the thinking in those communities from uh, short-term to long-term? 
That's a tough challenge. Um, you know, I think that, again, as I was saying, one of the keys to our framework and to thinking through energy democracy is that we have to ask that question of who's benefiting and who's not benefiting during this, this transition. And so that means that we care a lot about those workers that might um, lose a job as, you know, oil or, or gas or, or coal comes back on uh, offline um, and that really good decision-making is gonna take that into consideration and um, take into consideration transitioning into uh, new jobs or, or, or new systems, um, new energy systems. And so the, those, those constituents are, are very important um, in, a, in a transition. Um, you know, in terms of how to um, kind of persuade those communities, I might reframe the question and say, how do we get a good dialogue going between all of the stakeholders that would be affected by a decision and you know that frequent and early public participation that really um, gets all of those affected into a room together to dialogue and discuss and um, and talk through, and then potentially then lobby. You know, if we're talking on the state level, lobby representatives um, in terms of this kind of consensus and dialogue that's actually happening across different communities that might be affected by it. But it's a, I mean, that is a, that is a tough, um, it's a, it's a, the, the sort of, um, you know, how do we get all of the parties at the table with genuine participation is, is um, a tough challenge that, that scholars have been working on for, for many, many years. Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, scholars. Uh, you have a question about uh, how can, uh, uh, we get uh, us uh, at the uh, uh, academic level uh, or the ivory tower uh, out uh, into the community engaged in uh, some of these uh, issues. Uh, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, if you are an academic and you have expertise in any aspect of the energy system, then I encourage you to Talk to local um, politicians in your region. Um, you don't have to advocate for a particular policy, but you can talk about your expertise and what that brings to decision-making. Nonprofits are often looking for partnerships. Um, they don't want academics to kind of swoop in and change the direction of their nonprofit um, or you know, just kind of extract knowledges and, and produce publications, but genuine partnerships between academics and, and local community organizations, nonprofits can be a great way to get involved. Um, I happen to be a scholar that works a lot on public participation processes. So I've, um, I've worked with a variety of community groups to foster listening sessions, alternatives to public hearings. So even just um, if you know if you work in that area, being um, being a person that can help facilitate the types of democratic decision making or deliberation can be a great a great way to connect with the community. Uh, let me uh, ask you a question uh, that occurred to me during the course of the presentation, thinking about. Um, the democratic uh, connection to uh, energy transition. Uh, California is uh, uh, playing a major role these days uh, with its uh, renewable standards, uh, not only in terms of uh, influencing uh, and directing uh, how energy uh, is produced uh, and used in California, uh, but it's having an impact uh, elsewhere. Uh, in other states, in other in industries uh, located elsewhere, um, and within the state, for that matter, uh, how does that fit into the notion of uh, uh, energy democracy? Uh, this is a big fish in a big pond. I think uh, might maybe one way to think about it. Yeah. Yes. I wish we had a chapter on California in our in our handbook. We don't. Um, but a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, some of the mechanisms, some of the ways that have been approached by California can be analyzed um, from this kind of analytic um, and then potentially can be used as models um, for other other states. A second thing, and this was this is really my my co-author, um, Andrea Feld Parker, who talks about this. Um, so all props to her. But she really talks about how um, as we get shifts in national and international regulations and laws and leaders, 
that energy democracy requires this kind of movement between different scales of governance. And a lot of that will depend on, um, on whether the, um, the regulations that are most in line with energy democracy are happening at the federal level or at the state level. And so it's kind of this, um, th this sort of contextual issue of, of thinking through um, given, you know, given the, the political legal structures, uh, what are those nodes of politics or nodes of regulation um, that can particularly promote energy democracy at a, at a particular time? And as we know with California, sometimes it's at odds with national policymaking, sometimes it's in line with national policymaking. So um, just kind of thinking through those those shifts that occur in, um, in where the, the kind of most um, energy forward or de democracy forward decision making can happen. Great. Uh, let's uh, take one final question. Um, uh, the uh, questioner notes that uh, we have a system uh, uh, that's dominated by investors uh, that support uh, the various uh, <clears throat> companies that are uh, producing uh, uh, energy today. Um, the, the uh, and energy uh, production uh, requires a uh, long term uh, investments uh, looking far ahead. Um, and it's not easy to, uh, you know, shift gears. Uh, and uh, it's a real cash cow uh, for uh, energy producers. Uh, that is to have these investors online. Uh, and so I think the question really is, uh, you know, sort of how do we how do we address that problem? It's an economic one. It's a very real one in a capitalist system like ours, uh, where uh, we have a private investment uh, uh, intimately uh, connected to and uh, in many respects uh, driving our uh, energy system. Right. Yeah. Um, and this, of course, also brings up the, the sort of divestment movements that have developed to. Um, encourage, um, you know, not investing in particular companies and investing um, in other companies. You know, it certainly plays a big role, um, but I served on the, the, um, uh, the Senate, the University Senate Committee that sort of investigated um, divestment and reinvestment at the University of Utah. And so really delved into some of that research. And I was actually surprised to see that, um, there's already been a lot of movement um, of big investors towards renewables. Um, there's even been some major big investment firms like BlackRock that are shifting towards renewables. So, th so that's one piece of it is that there's maybe already this um, shift going on. And then for some institutions, the investment portion is only one piece. Um, there's also the piece of um, you know, kind of in the practices of the institution or the city or the or the state, um, there's all sorts of other tools that can be used. Um, you know, carbon neutrality pledges. The University of Utah has done a great job, actually, in transitioning away from fossil fuels and more reliance on uh, renewable energy. So, so that investment piece is important, but it's only uh, one piece in this kind of larger challenge of how to how to transition. Well, I think that speaks to that uh, complex diagram you uh, introduced your talk with uh, in terms of the many pieces uh, that are both moving and interlocking uh, and uh, the challenge of uh, moving uh, uh, each of them uh, as we move forward. So uh, with that, uh, uh, let me uh, thank uh, Professor Danielle Endress uh, for her presentation uh, today at the Wallace Stegner Center Green Bag on energy democracy. Uh, we very much appreciate uh, you joining us, sharing your uh, research and uh, expertise in this area. Uh, let me remind the audience that the uh, Stegner Center's uh, next Green Bag will be February 24th uh, with Professor Richard Lazarus from the Harvard Law School talking about his book, uh, The Rule of Five, Making Climate Change History at the Supreme Court. Uh, and also, let me remind you about the uh, 27th Annual Stegner Center Symposium on the Colorado River Compact, uh, March 17th and 18th, with registration available uh, online currently. Uh, with that, uh, thank you again for joining us, and we'll look forward to seeing you in a, a few weeks. Have a good afternoon. Thank you, everyone.